It Doesn't End Here is intended for mature audiences and may be disturbing to some. Please use discretion while listening. Last week, we discussed the cycle of abuse and how it has four phases. Tension building, the incident, reconciliation, and calm. Since last week's episode, we've had a lot of women reach out and ask what they should do if they are currently in an abusive pattern with their partner. I do want to say it's not uncommon for the cycle to happen repeatedly before you start to catch on to the abusive person's behavior. It's also not uncommon for women to stay in the cycle in hopes that it gets better over time. This sets the pace for the cycle of abuse to continue and gain momentum. After an abusive incident, abusers will try to get things back to normal as quickly as possible. During this time, they may buy extravagant gifts for the victim, may pay extra attention to detail, and try to make the victim believe that they have changed. If these tactics work, then a victim may slowly begin to be less defensive and may be open to communication and affection from the abuser. The most difficult part of an abusive relationship is breaking the cycle of abuse. Victims need to understand that the longer they stay in an abusive relationship, the more violent it can become. To end the cycle of abuse, it means being aware of the warning signs and then safely addressing them. The first step is to acknowledge that there's an abusive pattern happening. Oftentimes, you will see your partner's abusive behaviors as one-offs instead of character faults. You will also know the honeymoon periods and conclude that they are their most authentic self during the good parts of their relationship. Don't fool yourself. While it can be difficult to change your ways of thinking, you have to recognize that those honeymoon periods are just an act to help the abuser gain control. I suggest you seek help from friends, family, or a therapist. Even if you currently haven't told anyone of the abuse, you must at least have one person you can open up to who will be there to help support you during this process. They will help you see the cycle of abuse that you are trapped in and can help you make a plan to safely exit the relationship. While telling one person about your situation might not sound like a huge step, It's the first step in ending the abusive cycle. I'm Rachel Meadowcroft, and you're listening to It Doesn't End Here. last episode, Mason showed up at Laura's work, causing a scene in the parking lot. Laura's co-workers had been on high alert and knew something had been wrong for a while. I asked Felicia what she remembers about that day at work.
was that your biggest red flag, like after that incident? Why do you think she stayed quiet? Just out of embarrassment? Oh, yeah. In the the beginning, like the honeymoon phase. (laughs) While Laura's co-workers knew what was happening, she still hadn't told her family and friends. Laura started to feel depressed and anxious, and she found herself missing Mason, even though she knew she shouldn't. While Laura didn't see Mason for a few weeks, she knew Mason wasn't gone for good. On April 24, 2021, Mason contacted Laura because he needed help with an unknown charge on his AT&T bill. Against her better judgment, Laura decided to help Mason, and they agreed to meet. He needed help with one of his bills, and he said he wanted to see me. He had missed me. You know, I had missed him, too. I I didn't miss the abuse, obviously. <laughs> I missed the sweet Mason that was always there. I knew it was. I knew he was there, and for some reason, I was like, okay, I'll help you. Worst decision ever. As soon as he got out of the car, it was on. His whole demeanor was different. It was not the sweet Mason. It was, I'm going to raise hell, Mason. We met at Dollar General. He was like, got out of his car, slammed his car door, got into my car, and he was like, you need to help me get my shit in order. And I was like, here we go again. Like, what? I don't understand the whole everything needs to be in order. And I'm like, I've done everything you've asked me, and it's still not good enough. Like, what what else can I do? to appease you. Like I can't, there's, there's nothing. Everything is in order. Like in my mind, it's all done. But I think he was meaning like his entire being, like he didn't have a job. He didn't, you know, he had a car, but he didn't have a place to live. And I think that's what he meant. But in my mind, I went towards bills. I was like, well, if you got a job then you can have a place to live. And he's like, I want to live with you. And I was like, that's not going to happen right now. I was like, so this is how it's going to be. I'm going to be living here. You're going to be living in your car. You could go stay with your family. They have a place for you to stay. Let them help you because I'm tired of helping you. 
that threw him for a loop. If his head could spin, it probably would have. You know, I told him, I said, I'm going to go to my parents' house. If you want to come over, come over. If you don't, then don't. I left and was driving to my parents' house. He got so mad that I was going over there that he tried to like zoom in front of me and like cut me off. I backed up and I went around a different way. And he didn't know the neighborhood like I do. So I knew like the ins and outs of the neighborhood and where you could go and what what road would lead to what. So then I went around a different way, got to my parents' house, and he like flew down the street. There were neighbors outside. And so when I pulled up in the driveway, he pulled right behind me, like blocking my car in. He got out, opened my door. Whenever he got my door open, he like raised his hand at me. And when he raised his hand, I kind of turned and like flinched. Well, the neighbor saw that. I said, Mason, I don't want to do this here. If you're going to be this way, let's go somewhere else. I don't want my family seeing this. I don't want the neighbors are obviously looking. I said, let's go somewhere else. By divine intervention, April was at their parents' house when all of this was going down in the driveway. My parents uh, left to get their COVID vaccine. So I just happened to be the only one there. (laughs) I don't know how that happened. I guess it was like some type of internal intuition, something that was like, you need to stay here. Because I was like, why am I here? The neighbors on the corner knock on the front door and they have like a little peephole. And so I look through it and I'm like, we don't talk to them. Like, why are they here? And so I opened the door and... She kind of just told me, she was like, I just want to let you know of this incident that happened um, out in your driveway. And she was like, you're April, right? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, okay, so then this must have been your sister, I'm pretty sure. And I was like, my sister? Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) They were just kind of telling me that he yelled at them and threatened them and was driving extremely fast next to my sister or behind my sister and yelled at her and ripped the car door open and it like bounced back and forth a few times like is how hard he opened it and you could see her flinching and you could see her putting her hands on her face and that's when they you know said hey is everything all right because they were outside gardening they're only there's only one house between the two houses so they like came running over which i mean not too far but If they were being that loud to hear two houses away, that's pretty loud. And I was like, oh, my mom has cameras. Let me review the camera. And I was like, shoot, how do I do this without my mom knowing? Like, I knew her password to get in her computer, but I didn't know the password to get to the camera. (laughs) I told him, I said, I'll review the video, you know, see what's going on. And they said, well, we got a picture of the tag in the car. And I said, is it a black car with blacked out rooms? And they said, yeah. And I said, and it's like really tinted windows and just all black. (laughs) And they said, yeah, it is. And I was like, oh, okay. I know whose car that is. And I told them we're trying to get her away from him. And um, we're just kind of in a struggle of getting her away from him. Immediately, they were like, this guy is no good. They were worried for my sister. I called my mom and I was like, hey, how do you get in your camera? you know just trying to play it off she has access to her camera on her phone and so I couldn't really I couldn't play it off very well and so I pulled up the camera and watched the video I don't even think it happened in 
over a minute. Like, I think it all happened in a minute and he was gone. They were both gone. After driving around for a while, Mason and Laura pulled into a Sonic drive-in and parked between two eliminated menus. I just remember crying and I was crying uncontrollably and he was, you know, calling me a crybaby and I need to stop crying and why do I cry all the time? And he was like, you know, this is all your fault. We wouldn't be in this, this situation if it wasn't for me. I was like, none of this is my fault. I'm not choosing to get abused. I'm not choosing to hit myself. I'm not choosing to name call and yell and scream. I'm not doing any of that to myself. Like he's the one doing, you know, and I kept having to like rationalize that in my head. I kept having to like tell myself in my head, like, no, Laura, that's not, it's all him. It's not you. Like, and he's sitting there, you know, screaming, it's all you, it's all your fault. And he worked himself up. He just started wailing on me. He hit me on my head um, several times. He hit me in my chest. I mean, he was just unloading all of these hits on me. I was like covering my face, covering my head, and I was kind of, just, and I was in the driver's seat, and I, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't open my door because the wall thing that you order on was right there, so I couldn't open my door and get out. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, he just stopped. You know, it's like the calm after the storm. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Did he have like a moment of clarity, like he came to? I was exactly about to just say that. It was like a moment of clarity, and he stopped. I mean, it was almost just like, okay, and we drove away. My parents were calling me and they were like, where is she at? I said, I don't know, she left. And so at that time, they had the location thing on her phone. And so I looked it up. I was like, okay, so she's at the Sonic. And I was like, okay, should I go there? Should I call her? You know, like, what if she comes back here and nobody's here? Like, I was just so very torn. And so I just started FaceTiming her. I think on, like, the fifth time I FaceTimed her, she answered on her Apple Watch, which means no video. And I was like, I need you to come home now. I said, something's happened. I need you to come home. The minute I said something happened, she knew exactly what I meant. I I did not say anything. I was so vague in that conversation. All I just kept saying was, I need you to come home now and help me. She was like, okay, I'll be there in a little bit. And I said, where are you? And she was like, I'm at Sonic. And I said, I need you to come home now. And she was like, can I finish eating? I said, no, Laura, I need you to come home now. Now, like right now. She turned her locations services off so I couldn't see where she was anymore. I was like, oh gosh, this is it. And so I called my parents back and told them where she was and that I talked to her. My parents were like, okay, well, we're just going to stop by on the way home to that Sonic. I hung up with them and I called her. I think it ended up being 58 times. I would alternate calling her and FaceTiming her, calling her and FaceTiming her, and she would just let it go to voicemail. She wouldn't even hang up the phone. She, like, you know, declined the call. She would just let it ring and ring and ring. So I ended up calling the cops, and I I didn't even know how to describe the situation. It was all too fresh in my mind. And I was like, I think this is a domestic dispute. She was like, okay, we'll send an officer out to your location. And 
they were like, where is she? And I said, I don't know. This was her last known location. Then my mom and I were sitting there, we're like, where is she? Like, we were trying to get in Laura's mind without Laura and trying to figure out where she was. And so we were literally putting our purses on and she walks in the door. We were about to go find her and she walks in the door. Hey, how's it going? And walks in her room. I think my mom said something along the lines of what the fuck just happened. I was, you know, still kind of shaken up. I was still kind of like, what the hell just happened? Um, I walk into my parents' house. My parents are like, what's going on? I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) You know, and my sister's crying. My mom's crying. My dad's like in protect mode. I start crying because they're asking me questions. My mom said, we've called the cops. We know that he tried to hit you in the driveway. And they said that he better never show up here again. And I was like, I'm terrified of him. Like, I don't, you know, that was the first time I told my family that I was scared of him. My mom and my sister just hugged me and they cried. And I mean, I was kind of numb at that point. I didn't really know what to do or what to say. I just hugged her and she cried and cried and cried. And I said, Laura, was that bruise on your face from him? And she was like, yes. And I said, you don't ever let a man touch you like that. We finally got her calmed down and the cop shows up. I did not let her be out there by herself out in the front yard. I was like, if she's going to talk to a cop, she's going to tell the truth and she's going to own up to what's been happening. She looked at me and she was like, should I press charges? And I said, no man will ever lay a hand on me without going to jail. I don't even know if she even had time to comprehend what had just happened to her. So there was no way she was going to comprehend what I was telling her. I think yeah. it was just a trauma response. She heard you, but that was it. How Laura's brain works is you kind of have to turn it around. And who is she protective over? She's protective over me. I said, would you like somebody beating me up? And she was like, no. I said, where should that person be? And she was like, in jail. And I was like, okay. <laughs> She was like, okay, I'll file charges. When the cops came, they questioned me. They said, you know, how long has this been going on? What's been going on? So I I told, you know, I kind of just laid it all out for him. I didn't really know where to start or what to say to the cops. So I just kind of told them everything. I told them that he was abusing me, that he was, he had hit me. He asked me if he had hit me today. And I said, yes, had hit me more than he ever had today. He took down the information. He said, do you want to press charges? I said, yes. And that was it. He went to his car. My sister stood out there with me. My parents stood inside. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Trauma is a catalyst. It provokes significant change in the lives of survivors, as well as in the lives of their caregivers. Join me, Carrie Rickert, on my podcast, Transformational Trauma and Healing, as our guests share their stories of trauma and the resources that have been beneficial to them. We will celebrate our guests' successes and learn from their struggles, adding tools to our trauma survival toolbox along the way. (laughs) 
Lore decided to press charges against Mason for his violent attack. While Lore and April were talking to the police officer in the driveway, Mason comes walking up to the house. The cop had just walked away, and I looked at Mason, and I looked at my sister. I put my sister out of harm's way. Like I kind of was like, you stay over there. My sister looked terrified. And I looked back at Mason to see where he was, and he was closer. And I was like, oh, my God. And so I looked back at the officer, and I was like, help. You know, like, I couldn't say anything. Like, nothing could come out of my – I was screaming bloody murder inside of me, but nothing was audibly coming out. The officer runs out of his car, sees Mason, and Mason just stood there. And didn't do anything. Officer, you know, confirmed it was him. He was like, what's your name? Who are you? You're no longer allowed on this property. What are you doing here? And he was like, I left my keys in her car. And so that's the only reason he was coming back. But after everything, I just told the officer, he put him in handcuffs. He searched him in the middle of the yard. So another officer came for backup. They put him in the back of the cop car, searched his bag. He had a knife on him. It was like a pocket knife or something. I don't know. They threw it down on the ground. They put him in the back of the cop car. They sat with him in the car and told him, like, he's not allowed to come here. He's not allowed He's not allowed to be around me. He's not allowed at this address. He needs to leave, He under, and he understands. That was the first time someone had told him to stay away from me. I felt relieved. I was like, thank goodness it wasn't me telling him that, <laughs> and it was someone else. And it was two officers while he was handcuffed in the backseat of a cop car. You know, they said, you know, he has a car. Whose car is it? And I said, well, it's in my name. They said, okay, you have to keep the car. You, he, he can't take it with him. And they took Mason to somewhere on I-35 and told him to walk home. Like, go, you need to leave. Just walk. Wait a second. Didn't you tell the officers that you wanted to press charges against this man? I did. And they just dropped him off on, like, the highway somewhere and told him to walk home? He didn't even have a home. Yep. They dropped him off on I-35 after I told them I wanted to press charges. They said he needs to leave. You know, he's not allowed around here anymore. He just needs to be on his way. What did that make you feel like once you realized they had just let him go? (laughs) I was in the same boat. Like, why didn't you just take him to jail? Like, I told you all of this stuff. I told you I want to press charges. And now you're just letting him walk free. I didn't understand. Did you think that Mason was going to come back? At that point, no. He does not want any trouble with the law enforcement. So I knew he was going to stay away. And he did. He stayed far away. He went all the way to Kansas to his mom and grandpa's house. I had blocked his number. Um, I blocked any contact that I had with him. From April to July, I did not talk to him. You know, I was like, okay, this is it. I'm going to be done. This is where I need to be. I need to continue moving this direction. Having no contact with him was not easy, though. It was like ripping off the toughest Band-Aid you could ever imagine. Like, it was, you know, I cried all the time. You know, my therapist has always been one to be like, okay, if you're in a depressed mode, if you're in, you know, that numb feeling, make sure you continue to eat because that's the problem is when I get to that point, I stop eating. Like the sight or smell of food just makes me want to vomit. And during this time, I was like, okay, 
how about let me go start seeing her again? So I started seeing her again and I hadn't seen her since last, it's been like 10 months or so. I I apologized to her because I didn't know how else to be like, hey, (laughs) I need you again. (laughs) This is what's been going on with my crazy life. And she, you know, she was obviously glad that I came back and that I came to her because, you know, she had known my past. She had known kind of what, what led me up into that point. But she was in shock as to what had been going on, you know, when I told her everything that had been happening. So she was glad to have me back. Um, I did not talk to Mason for a while and it was it was actually becoming more relieving and I wasn't having to deal with the daily stress of like being called names or being abused physically, mentally, emotionally. And I was getting to the point where I was like, wow, I can do this life without him. I can be myself again. And my sister was like, you know, you're getting to be more happy. You're laughing more. You're actually going and doing things versus me just sitting in the house. He didn't tear me down as much as I thought he would have. I still was able to be myself after everything. And it was nice. And it was a great feeling. When I finally realized that, it was a happy day. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably really eye-opening when you're like, actually, I'm still okay. Yeah, I was definitely okay. I was fine and I was moving forward. Do you think that that has a lot to do with the fact that you had already been in therapy previously, kind of finding your worth while you were dealing with your marriage? And then, yes, this crazy situation happened, but at least you'd already worked on yourself. I think, yeah, I think that had a big role to play in it. I mean, honestly, if I would have never gone to therapy, just speculating, I probably still would have been in a marriage I was completely miserable in. Going to therapy, moving on, being able to make a decision to divorce my ex-husband, and then making a decision to fully commit to another new relationship, I think had a lot to do with therapy. I don't think I could have ever done that without it. It gave me a lot of tools and a lot of different ways to see things in life, to handle things. Using those tools and during the work before this relationship, before this abusive relationship, I think prepared me for what was coming. How was your family, everyone reacting after all of this? Because you'd had quite a few people get involved within a very short amount of time. Yes, I had my friends at work, my coworkers, um, my friends outside of work got really protective of me. They got, they checked on me daily. I had daily conversations with them about how I was feeling, what, you know, this is, you know, a bad day. I'm having a good day. It was such an up and down roller coaster. I had a lot more downs than ups and then it kind of reversed itself. My sister was there for me. I told her everything and she was like, Laura, like, you've got to tell me before it mm-hmm. gets to a point where you like, there's no turning back. And I was like, I know, but I just didn't know how to, I didn't know how to explain it to somebody. And I, I didn't want to be judged. Same thing in my marriage. I didn't want to be divorced and looked at as a failure. Same thing with this relationship. I didn't want another failed relationship. I didn't want, you know, the pity or the, sh- I didn't want to be shamed. I didn't want to be judged. There were so many aspects of it that just kind of went through my mind as to why I hid it. And I'm, I didn't want anybody's input and I didn't want anybody's opinion to skew what I wanted the relationship to be like. So I, I hid it. I didn't um, want anybody to 
know what was going on. I didn't want him to go to prison because of what was going on. My sister was there for me through this whole time after the April incident. She was constantly checking in on me, so were my friends and coworkers at work. They were always making sure that I hadn't talked to him, I still had him blocked, and I always reassured them, yes, like, you know, at one point I got to the point, I was like, here, see, I have him blocked. Like, this is not, (laughs) you know, this is the last time I talked to him. It's time stamped, date stamped, everything. I think it was more, I liked the accountability of them doing that. Not that they wanted to see, but it was just like, here, I'll double my accountability and Mm -hmm. show you like this. I'll prove to you this is not what I want. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to be with him. My parents at the time didn't really, I don't think they knew how to handle what was going on. Um, They didn't really know how to handle my divorce. And then when this all came out, it was well, they kind of shied away. They didn't really want to talk about it. I still to this day haven't asked them. I don't know what um, was going on in their mind. At one point, my mom kind of came up to me and was like, you know, why, why did you put yourself through that? And I was just like, I didn't really feel like I could get away. And the next thing she said to me just like tore me apart. And she said, I don't know why anybody would ever let someone do that to them. And in my mind, I'm like, I didn't let him do that. Like, I just didn't lay there and take it. I mean, I fought back. I He has scratch marks. I made him bleed. I, you know, I did everything I could to get away. I mean, I'm, you know, 140 pounds, 5'1". He's 200 pounds, 6'2". He's big. I'm little. <laughs> like, I'm not, you know, to kind of give like a size reference. I just, I didn't lay there and take it. I mean, he had battle wounds. And then for her to say that to me, it just was like, wow. I mean, I felt like I was being put down or shunned. I was in shock. And so that is literally the last time I talked to my mom about it. To this day, I still haven't opened up to them about any of it because I just don't want, I don't want to feel that shame. I don't want to feel like I'm being judged or their opinion to run all over me. Mm -hmm. It might be something that you and your mom might need to talk about in the future. Eventually, you might have to address it because those feelings will just linger Mm -hmm. and you don't want to think about it forever. You know, it's best to get it out. But I can imagine that that's a really painful and, you know, hard conversation to have. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. A lot of people don't understand this. They don't understand domestic abuse. And you know what? If they don't understand it, then they've never been victim to it themselves. And they also probably don't have somebody close to them that has been through it. And to that, I say that they are very lucky considering how common this is. Victim shaming is so prominent in this category of abuse. So I'm just so sorry that that happened to you. You have so many people behind you that love you. And I know you want your mom and dad's support. And I think that you do have it. They just don't understand it. Towards the end of June, I got a new phone. When I did my transfer from my Apple phone to my new Apple phone, it did not save all of my settings. I randomly got a message from him and I didn't understand how he was able to get a hold of me, saying, hi, I miss you. I've been trying to get my life on track these last few months. He asked me if I wanted to hang out. 
Will Laura accept Mason's apologies and see him again? Find out next week on the penultimate episode of the season. It Doesn't End Here was produced by me, Rachel Meadowcroft. Huge thanks to Laura, April, and Felicia for being a part of this series. As always, I ask you to please share this podcast with two people to spread awareness of abusive relationships and let women know that they are not alone. All resources used in this episode can be found on itdoesntherepodcast.com. I'm not a doctor or a therapist. If you or someone you know is currently suffering through an abusive relationship, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE.